Freedom only comes through persistent revolt, through persistent agitation, through persistently rising up against the system of evil. Martin Luther King Jr. You are now listening to our Mental Health Minute session notes. So hi everyone, I am Diawe welcoming you to this special Our Mental Health Minute conversation in celebration of Martin Luther King Day. We have our amazing RMHF family here and we're just going to do a quick round of intros before we get started in this conversation. Um, Quickly again, my name is Diawe. I am a graduate student at the University of Michigan and I'll kick it over to Marlena. Hello, my name is Marlena Debro. I am a doctoral student at Vanderbilt University and the operations manager for our Mental Health Minute. I'm gonna kick it over to Chandler. Hi, I'm Chandler. I am a graduate student at Virginia Commonwealth University and I'll pass it to Raven. Hi everybody, I'm Raven Odom. Um, title, I guess, would be strategist working in the racial equity space with different organizations. Um, and I'll pass it to Timothy. Hey everyone, my name is Timothy. I'm an undergraduate student at the University of South Carolina. Super excited for this talk. Um, I'll pass it to Dr. Jones. Greetings everyone. Uh, I am Sean Jones. You may know me better as CT. I am an assistant professor at VCU and I will pass it to Rolanda. Hi everybody. I'm Rolanda Mitchell. I'm assistant teaching professor at North Carolina State University, and I will pass it over to Ree. Hey, y'all. I'm Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson. You may know me best as Ree, and I am an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, co-founder with Dr. Jones of our Mental Health Minute. Back to you, Diawe. Thank you. I am so excited for this conversation today, um, primarily because it's so important to honor and really expand how we think about Martin Luther King. Right now, history often fails to really consider how radical and revolutionary he is. We were talking um, a little bit earlier and thinking about how there was this, like many of us kind of grew up in this system where we learned Martin Luther King was a good activist and um, Malcolm X was bad, but there's just so much, and there's so much richness in their own histories and Martin Luther King in particular, because he had radical ideas for how this country could be transformed on so many levels. And he had so much to even say about psychology, right? So in 1967, King gave this speech to APA or the American Psychological Association and he went on, like he went on about the ways in which social scientists have failed to tell the truth about the way racism poisons the American life. So back then he was like really calling things out and fast forwarding us to 2022, I want us to reflect on the ways in which there are things that are happening in our environment that we shouldn't be adjusted to, like racial discrimination, segregation. Those are the things that um, Martin Luther King was talking about to APA back then. But what are the ways in which 
right now, things that are going on right now, what are the things that are happening in our society that we need to disrupt and figure out how to liberate um, lives of Black people in this entire American society so we can open it up. Um, anyone who wants to jump in there. So I would have to say the old folks like to say there's nothing new under the sun. So I think a lot of what is happening today are things that were going on during King's time. I think we are in a position, especially through the use of our media, especially through our ability to communicate with one another, to really understand some of the issues that are that we are coming up against. Um, I think two for the biggest issues for me um, that would help with the liberation of Black people is one is being able to tell our truth. Uh, currently, legislators are working very hard to prevent people from being able to tell the truth about the institutional nature of many of the things that we face. And I think that is one of our biggest fights, because if we're ever supposed to do better, if we're ever supposed to repair or heal from America's mistakes and misdeeds, we definitely need to be able to address what those issues are and not just in closed company. Um, I would say the second thing would be to be an to be aware of intersectionality and to think about our movement as intersectional. I think when we have movements that are focused only on one part of our community, we lose sight of the fact that the rest of us aren't free until all of us are free. So I definitely think that moving forward and continuing on with thinking about the experiences of those who are the most marginalized is essential for us to really see the liberation of black people. I'll, I'll jump in and add that um, around that this, this systemic piece that where the legislation is trying to keep us from the knowledge about systemic issues like that affect the way that we live and move around the world. Um, but I think that financial piece is so embedded in that um, in terms of our liberation and, and our the power that we have to do the things that we wish to do and, the, and the, um, fulfill the dreams that we have. Um, so like Marlena mentioned, nothing new under the sun, like um, redlining is, you know, like um, the in inequities in housing, for example, are not new. Um, I think that it just, they might look a little different now. So um, where there are not legal things on paper saying that you can't buy a house here, there are so many systemic things present um, in the home ownership process that keep us from having that. So I'm sure many of you saw the story, like in the, it's not the only one, but have seen a story recently around um, a black homeowner trying to get um, her home, the home appraised and, you know, then having um, someone else, a white person pose as as the homeowner and how the valuation changed so much. So those kind of things that are so embedded in the, the home things like homeownership that will give us the financial power that we need to feel freer and to feel that we have more power to do. They're, they're there and they don't want us, they don't want us to acknowledge it that it's there. They don't want us to know that it's there. And that goes back to that, those efforts from a higher up level to just take the history out, take the knowledge out. Um, and, and again, you know, keeping Black people ignorant to knowledge has always been such a key component of this systemic um, oppression, oppression part of it. So I'll pause there. Yeah, I got me taking notes. <laughs> this, if I can, if I could jump in, I, I appreciate what both, what both Marlena and, and Rolanda have, have said so far. And the yeah, well, that's a really, really dope question. When I actually heard it, I, I want to plus one everything that has been said. 
And I, and I also want to add, you know, when I think about the question of what are things in 2022 that we should not be getting adjusted to, it makes me think about the work that we are endeavoring to do and where I'm at in thinking about like the distinction between resilience on the one hand and resistance on the other hand. And so when I circle back around to everything that we just talked about, many of these same issues being those same issues that King was talking about in 67 saying we shouldn't be adjusted to this, meaning like we should resist, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, right, we think about resistance and resilience. We think about those two terms like from a, an ecological perspective, one is like a, do we bounce back? And one is like, eh, do we not let this come in here in the first place? And so when you share, when you're sharing that, I'm hearing King say, eh, like we can't, we got to keep this out. Like not, we got to like, let it be a part of the fabric. And we learn to kind of vibe and weave and sway and make our way. And this is uh, around the time of keeping our head above water. Like it's, you know, it's around that same time. It's, it's you know, the, the good, the good times theme. And so I'm thinking about all of these things and really beyond naming a specific thing, I'm thinking about us walking in a space and us walking in a voice and us walking in a power of uh-uh, a resistance of like, yeah, we, we, we can be resilient. Like we, we, we do that. We do that so well. And like King is saying, like, let's not be a, like, let's not get accustomed and, and adjusted to those things. Let's like stomp them out at the root. Let's not even let them in and interfere from the beginning. And so that that's just the one thing I wanted to add on top of that. Uh-uh, resistance. I have, I'm going to take that. Um, whew, so with something else um, that really struck me in um, King's speech back in 1967 was he talked for this about this need for a wholesome Black unity. And I thought it was interesting even that he that he chose to speak on this need for Black unity to where I imagine about Black unity to what I imagine was a crowd of not many Black people in there. Um, but he still chose to talk about like this need to get over um, divisions within the Black community. And he, in particular, he talked about class and about how there is this disconnect between upwardly mobile Black people and lower class Black people. And I want us to reflect on that now. Like, are, do you think that class divisions between upper to middle class Blacks and lower class Black people, that that is the disruption of Black unity? Or is there something else? Like, is there some other critical phenomenon or something else that undermines this sense of Black unity? I'm happy to jump in quickly on this one. So I was just chatting with my mom about how despondent I've been over the past few weeks, really, at the state of our union when it comes to COVID. And one of the things that I was relating it to was my job as a social scientist and how once I saw people behaving a certain way because of COVID, I was like, oh, if I'm trying to change people's behaviors around racism, like how do I believe that I'm going to have that ability to do that? And I started making these connections. And the long story short is that I thought to myself, even as demographics change, you might see racism shift, but people learn just like Omicron variants learn about how people are operating. I think the people who then have power are gonna say, this is what it looks like to have power and the benefit of having that power. And so even if 
we have a group of people who are diminishing in number, the idea that having power and privilege is worth it to, to oppress other people is going to be a, a thread that, that goes through. So for your question, the more fractions that we have in our community, whether it's socioeconomic status, residential segregation, like whatever that thing is, the folk holding power are like, I see how the people who have power over me are benefiting from this. So I'm gonna to continue to level, leverage that against people, even if it's the same, same skin color, same group, et cetera. Like I'm going to leverage that because my opinion is now that I have a little bit of power, so I'm gonna take it. Just that taste of it is better than nothing. And it's funny how we will fight over just the scraps of power that we're even let to get versus this big pot, right? So I'm gonna end my baby sermon here, but in this thought that we are, yes, SES is one of the things in our community that is causing disunity, but it could be anything else. And I think even with COVID, we have seen black leaders get on TV, point fingers at the, the black folks who on a corner doing X, Y, and Z. And it's mind boggling that they would do that to folks within their own race. But is it? And I've learned now that it is not that people are really out here trying to grab whatever power they can. To kind of piggyback off of that, we are not monolithic. We never have been. And we are increasingly diverse as a group of people that are known as Black Americans. We are various ethnicities. We come from different places. We have different ideologies. And I think in King's time, the majority of Black Americans are people who are Afro-descendant of like enslaved Africans and maybe some Caribbeans as well. So people who had experienced or historically experienced you know, the Middle Passage were people that we were, we were connecting to. Um, and so there was a similar history and now there's maybe less of a similar history. And there's also experiences, a different differential experience socioeconomically. So it's like not so much that we have a singular way of seeing who we are, even viewing us as being a singular people because for a lot of people, they don't necessarily see black Americans as a, as a group. Um, and instead choose to hang on to their ethnic monikers instead. So like, I think the idea of black unity is positive and nice, but really challenging when we consider all the different sources um, of black people in the United States. It's that's such a really profound thought because it really makes me think like, oh, so what is unity? Like, what, what is unity? What does it look like? How do we struggle for collection, collective action and also recognize all of the, the diversity that is within Blackness? I just... Raven, did you have a thought? Yeah, just a building off of what you all have um, shared already, thinking about how capitalism, again, undergirds and informs the division, you know, in our community, how that plays a role in um, thinking about what are we centering, like even in the black community, if, like you said, you're looking at, hey, profit, wait, this is, that's connected to my power. And that's what I'm centering. You looking at me as expendable then, like my, you know, what regard do you have for my life or the living conditions that I'm in when your focus has now shifted here because of the capitalist um, economic system that we live and operate under within. Yeah, I feel like with that, like the overall theme is that it's like, it's more of a focus on like the self, like me as an individual and like making sure I have what I need to take care of myself versus like 
thinking, oh, how can I take care of like myself and like the rest of us or like someone else? Like, I think we just have a more individualistic view of things now. Um, And like, it all ties back to like the capitalism and just like that desire to have power, any sort of power over anyone when we're already so oppressed, like just wanting a little taste of it. And I, I do think it's helpful to remember that all to continually remind ourselves that all of that is by design. So like the goal is for one of us to get something great. And, and then it's like, oh, well, what they've been telling us all along is true. So it's right. It is. It, the, the American exceptionalism dream is a real thing. You just got to work hard enough and then you'll get it. And then you can just turn. It makes it so much easier to rationalize the choices that have us pushing, like turning our back on the rest of our community to focus on ourselves. And all of that is by design. And I think it's so easy to forget that. So we have to remind each other about that. Diawa, you're going to be mad at me because I'm going to talk twice. I'm gonna, it's going to be quick. It's going to be quick. And I need to- Go ahead. Sorry, Dr. Jones. Super quick. I volunteered a, a soup kitchen here in Detroit. And um, there's a, a group of folks who I get a chance to know and we're you know, thick as thieves at this point. And one gentleman one day turned to me and he was like, you know what? You haven't left yet. You all right with me. And I had to sit back with this man's comment because as much as some of us might look at the people going through that line and think of them as the least of these with SES, right? Like maybe they don't have a a roof or um, the warmest clothes or whatever. What I took in that moment was this man looking at me and saying, we see y'all all the time. People come in and they funnel through and we might think of you as the least of these because y'all are just coming in, getting your fix, getting your community service hours, like doing whatever you need to do to feel good about yourselves. But when this man turned to me and said that, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an emotional thug. So I was like, oh, <clears throat> thank you, sir. Like I had to really block the tears from coming to my eyes because I thought of myself in that moment as the least of the, how, how is it that people can come in and not see our fellow brother and sister and, and, and acknowledge their humanity, how, how little we are in that moment. And for folks who know my story, how a tornado has hit my house before and I've been homeless and had to sleep on couches and like had two things in a luggage by the grace of God to change out of, right? Like I've had that experience. So I know what that's like to, to some degree, but like he, he read me in that moment not even a way that he was even aware of, but how in this scenario where we're saying we're privileged at this moment, that could be gone like this because it is by design. My, the whole, and we've seen it in our own lifetimes, the, you know, the mortgage collapse, all these things by design can just be snatched from under us. And so this idea that we hold privilege and power is even in, 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 in and of itself a fallacy, right? <sighs> yeah. Moment of silence. <laughs> no, really, really. It's just I. Um, I think what this does because it going through being in graduate school and going through this process of like climbing the the ladder of the elite, it causes me always to reflect and question like where, how do I make sure that I have, that whatever I'm doing here in this, this, this academic world, like how do I make sure that it actually supports and connects back to black people? Like that's really, that's what I came here to do. How do I make sure that I do that? Um, but 
in many ways like so it's in many ways it's easy to just be like oh but I got this academic job somewhere else and I have this and and then you leave um it's ongoing but something else I wanted to really think about is the timing of this speech so this speech that we're talking about that King gave, he gave it in 1967, which was just a time, y'all. Like it was a time of, of unrest. It was a time when black people were, not that this is the only time, but it was one time in which black people really had, they were getting, they were protesting. There were, and in, in the way in which the um, white media talked about it, they, it was urban riots and, and there was a sense of fear and unrest and so, King, in this speech, spent a lot of time reflecting on um, the riots. And he essentially were noting that Black people were tired and angry and were using um, this riot as a form of protest to day, the daily violence of white oppression. And was again, truly trying to paint this picture that, you know, y'all so scared over the, this, these riots, this loss of property, but think about the loss and the devastation and destruction that oppression causes to the daily life of Black people. Um, and he and also like something else is that he was reflecting on, you know, his own advocacy for nonviolence and fighting and fighting for strategies like voter, um, like voting rights. But recognizing like there's some there might be some limitations here, in that like these strategies alone can't all meet all the needs that black people really want and they want change. And so thinking again, back to today, like we're still demanding liberation. We're still protesting. We're still fighting for rights. And the question comes like, are our efforts in the right place? <laughs> like, are there different actions that we need to be taking? Or are there different strategies that we, we need to be um, highlighting and, and, and doing in this time. Um, what do you think? We can, uh, Rolanda, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I'm, I'm always an advocate for voting rights and putting efforts there. So I don't, there's not, I, I can't imagine a time where I would think that the efforts aren't in the right place, but <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, and, and I think that, um, we can, there, there's ways to grow because right now, a lot of black folks, black folks in particular are who, who are paying attention to the things that are happening are very frustrated and disappointed because we voted and we got people in power and we are watching um, people, white folks in power actively work to dismantle this voting system. So, you know, like, so it's so frustrating because like we voted, you know what I'm saying? Like now another thing is coming up. It's like, get out and vote. I'm like, dang, we did that. I saw a post that said, no, we already did that. Can you think of another song? Like tell us something else to do. And so I think that, um, again, like I, I believe that, I believe that um, voting is important. I think we can add to that um, additional efforts and knowledge around how we can hold our elected officials accountable. Um, so for example, when we do vote, what can we do next? What can we, what, you know, how, what can we do? And, and, and again, the, the being exhausted is also by design. Like they never get tired. Oppressors don't get tired. They are on a loop. They have a very well-run machine that never slows down. They never take a break. They don't take a holiday. They don't sleep. They never lose focus. They're like the Terminator. And we are human beings that struggle because they, and they, we get tired. And so, um, so we're watching these things play out. So I think Voting, yes, keeping efforts there, adding to that knowledge around how we can hold 
um, officials accountable once they are elected. And I think that we continue to, from my perspective, struggle with, um, uh, we don't, I don't believe that we have enough awareness around the importance of local elections because that's where a lot of the tinkering is happening um, is at the local and state level to diminish, to disenfranchise us. And I think that we can add to that. So I'll stop. Yeah, I to add to that. Um, I just want to say that our country was built on white supremacy. So it doesn't matter what building is burned or what's being torn down. It's about power at the end of the day. The buildings and whatever's being torn down is based and represents power. So when you hear someone say, an oppressor say, well, you burnt that building, the whole message gets lost because you burnt the building. And it's like, is it really about the message? Or is it about the power that's been messed up, right? Because as activists, as Black people, we have been doing this and fighting and fighting and fighting. And we've been doing it and we've been coming from the right place. Um, We have to continue to respect everybody at the table as Black people. and respect where we are and respect where we're going um, and allow our experts to lead the way. Um, and it can feel a lot of times like what we're doing isn't in the right place because of that pushback we consistently get from oppressors, but what we're doing is right. It is not our job to be uh, focusing on what they're saying. It's our job to do, to continue to make sure our efforts are in the right place and, and sticking to our, our values as a community. It's their job to be fixing these things. It's their job to be thinking about whether they're in the right place. Um, and that's what I wanted to add. I feel like, sorry, I feel like I'm pivoting a little bit around, but uh, to go back to particularly like the voting piece, um, that's one part, right? If, even in the electoral process, I think even beyond voting, we have to look at redistricting. What informs who even gets on the ballot? Like the folks that we can elect, campaign finance, you know, those strategies. Um, but even beyond beyond that doctor, and I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, Dr. I think it's Kianga Yamada Taylor um, wrote this amazing article. And I want to read a quote because doctor is more way more eloquent than I, if that's okay, um, talking about voting. And they said, that which would protect the health and safety of black communities, a fully funded public sector, an end to pol- police brutality, living wage jobs with health insurance is almost never on the ballot. Those demands are rarely found in the realm of electoral politics. Instead, they will most surely be the products of social movements and struggle. Um, So thinking about, yeah, efforts beyond, yes, the voting can be a tool in the toolbox and, you know, you know, navigating that, but also other ways that we can push for change, I think is important. Thank you. Oh, Dr. Che, I love her. Yes, just, I mean, just, (sighs) yes. Thank you for bringing that in. <sighs> but I think, um, th- thank you all for so much of your, your thoughts on that um, and beginning to even for us to sit and think about like, what is the right place for our efforts? Like not only, um, it's like broadening like the question out a little bit to where do we want to go? Um, and one of the things that we couldn't have left elementary school if we didn't know was that King was a dreamer and um, 
I think one of the things that I love about King just in general is that he gave this example of like, how do you dream in a way to transform our society? Like, how do you actually do that? Like what, and he took dreaming so seriously. It was like an, an act for him. And ultimately he dreamed of this idea of a beloved community wherein everybody is cared for. And I think that this vision that he had of beloved community demands that we find healing for black communities. So what does that look like now? I think unfortunately his life was cut so short that, um, and maybe the, the flip side is there is there's a generation of new leaders and thinkers who are thinking about healing and, and um, transformation for black communities. But what are our ideas for that? Tim, do you wanna kick us off? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think a beloved community is all about listening to the people who are the most oppressed. So listening to our black disabled people, our black um, women, all these different communities who have been oppressed and have intersectionally been oppressed. Um, consistently, we have to think about what we can do to make sure that they are cared for. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's that saying where we're not free until we're all free, right? So, if you're saying, well, I'm good. I don't know about y'all, but I'm good. <laughs> you know, you hear people say that and it's like, isn't it about all of us? We all want to be together. We want to be coming up together and, and, and being where we want to be and all achieving our goals. And as a collective, um, we should want to move to wherever goals we want and reach those things. So, um, yeah. Yeah, piggybacking off of Tim, I really like that you mentioned like intersectionality because I think that's like the big thing. Like I think to move towards that community, we need to kind of look within our community and look at like who within our community are we harming and like unlearning that kind of stuff. So like unlearning like homophobia, unlearning like ableism and things like that and working to kind of like heal ourselves from that and support the people that are like further marginalized within our community. I think that's how we can really move towards more unity as well as like just being a more like collectivist group as well. And I'll just add real quick. I think once we started this conversation talking about um, King speaking to a professional community and, a, and a, in terms of healing and connected to Timothy's point about paying attention to the voices of the people who are not typically heard very often as professionals there are, there are professionals who mine knowledge, who go into the community to mine the knowledge. And I'm going to use this for this. I'm going to use this for that. And then they go and tell the story as opposed to having the people tell their own story and use whatever, like it's instead of like mining for information for research or whatever, and then taking it elsewhere and using it elsewhere. I think we need to keep it there. Like how can we let folks let their voices speak um, as opposed to having other people speak for them and also take that and give, what are we giving back? I think too often as professionals, we go in, mind a lot, take it elsewhere and we need to pay attention to the people in the community that, that need the healing. And when we are making professional efforts, make sure we are giving back and not just taking. I feel like we professionals take too often and not don't often give back. I think another thing in terms of healing for communities is to really 
focus on our children. Like I was reading post-traumatic slave syndrome not too long ago. And one of the question, one of the questions that Maasai warriors would ask each other in greeting would be, are the children okay? Are the children all right? And that's a question that really guides my professional, my professional aspirations, but really thinking about how are we breaking these sort of generational curses? We went through however many years of enslavement, of apartheid, of current uh, systemic oppression, those things have left their marks on us in ways that we are not always aware of. And one of the things that I envision for Black people going forward is to be able to take the time and begin to uncover the ways in which these experiences of trauma have changed us and have altered how we treat ourselves and how we treat our children and how we're raising and rearing them. Um, and I think that's one of the areas of healing. Like, for example, you know, my mom's generation, it was just like, if you step out of line, that's a whooping. <laughs> like, that's like, go get me a switch. Go get me, you know, go get me something. And like, whereas some of that may be from enslavement and some of it might not, might not be, it's worth us, worth it for us to take the time and reevaluate how some of our practices may be a reflection of the trauma we've endured as opposed to what, you know, the outcome that people may, may really have. Dr. Jones, get in there, get in there. <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, I had so many thoughts as folks were sharing. You know, one of them, I really want to thank you, Marlena, for that last one, because, you, you know, kind of, Diawa, you opened up and you said that, if we didn't get through elementary school, you know, we couldn't get through elementary school without learning about that, that Martin Luther King had a dream. And, and it makes me think about the utility of the utility of dreams, the, uh, this is getting real psychologically nerdy, but there are theories of why we dream. Um, and one theory around, uh, around why young people dream in particular is that the dreaming allows them to learn. It is good for their development. It is good for their growth. And so when I think about kind of just hearing what you said, Marlena, about the importance of really focusing on our young folks and are they okay? One of the metrics to me and kind of linking this arc back to King is like, are they still dreaming? Are we stomping out the dreams of the youth? <laughs> right, we couldn't get out of grade school without knowing that King had a dream, like, how are we facilitating the dreams, the vision, the revolutionary imagining of our young folk? And then, you know, not just to say, okay, well, you had it, okay, that's cool, you know, go draw it on, draw it on a piece of paper, but then how do we help them realize, realize those, achieve those? Um, that really came up for me, so, so that was in my spirit. Another thing I want to say, just real quick, sorry, I'm, I'm going to get off of but it kind of connects back to the question of unity, but also this, this beloved community. And I think it was both, you know, Timothy and Chandler who brought into sharp relief, like thinking about <clears throat> marginalized and voices. I heard that, and it made me think about, and I'm not going to completely fib here. It made me also look at like, well, what, what does unity mean? And so one of the definitions of unity is harmony. And one of the, and, and harmony, right? When we're talking about harmony, we're talking about this idea of multiple voices or multiple notes that come together to make, to produce a pleasing sound. Like that's the definition of harmony. So it feels like far too often, right? And what I'm hearing is like, 
what when we hear voices that are those who are food or housing insecure or marginalized or trans or, or otherwise able, are we really trying to integrate those into harmony, i.e. unity? Or are we trying to talk over them? Are we trying to sing, we're gonna just sing over those other voices to produce the sound we wanna produce, but that's not really true harmony, right? Like let's bring the voices together, right? And together like listening to those voices rather than singing over them, rather than outperforming them, how do we actually bring that harmony together? Um, and that to me would be a true, you know, a true vision of unity. So I'm gonna stop there, but those are thoughts that came to mind. <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick up on that real quick. I, I have two thoughts, but just to piggyback on that, what you're saying is that the harmony is about singing the same song about black wellness in different voices to layer because a song in one note is only going to be sung a certain way. So if you have multiple notes, that allows the layer, that's what allow our ears and eyes to get so excited when we think about the same song sung in different voices. So I, I even thought you were going a different place when you were talking about pleasing because in a lot of ways we want cacophony, we want noise, we want disharmony when we're saying something because we want there to be different voices. But mm. when you bring this idea that we could all be singing the same song in different keys and different notes. It allows us to hear what other people are bringing in with the same message, the same words, right? So love that. I gotta just bring in super quick what I'm hearing from folks. Um, love what you were talking about, Sean, about dreaming. And I, I wanna talk about the two things that keep coming up for me, which is liberation and reparation. So you started, yeah, when you, talked about your class at Spelman, you talked about liberation. And this is something that I brought into a talk I gave recently, where one of the issues with racism right now is that because it's endemic, because it's something we've been living with our entire society as an America, people don't think we can live without it. People are resigned to believing we have to live with it. Liberation is not just liberating our own thoughts. It is believing that it is possible to liberate our state of being from racism, that, that we can exist as a United States of America without racism. So I'm gonna push for liberation of th this, this idea that we can free ourselves of the notion that we must live in a racist society is what liberation means to me. So that's the dream that I have, the vision, again, like Sean is saying, when, when I think about it, when children think about what their lives look like, that they are even able not to free themselves, but to be totally devoid of having to resist, of having to be resist, of, of any of that. It is free. That, that's what true freedom means to me. So that's when I think about liberation is connected to dreaming in that way very tightly. Reparation has come up in the conversation here because we've used the word repair. And I've been doing a lot of thought on what reparation means and how one must make amends one must heal, one, one must do all of this to repair. And that's what reparation is for us. When we're talking about it from a psychological standpoint, I'm very much getting ahead of myself and I promise to explain more in the next few years, you will see this from me. But um, one of the things that brought us to this conversation today was the American Psych Association in 2021, apologizing for racism and there being 
some backlash within the community about that being insufficient. So just as a part of our conversation today, what I'll say is that repair cannot come without acknowledgement. We cannot get to a place, in my opinion as a psychologist, to be well if someone does not apologize because we're seeing it in all of the work that people do in trauma, in stress, where people are desiring so much. They will, their whole lives might be finding that acknowledgement, finding that awareness, finding where somebody is seeing them and seeing their hurt. And they're doing all these things to build a life around being seen, their, their hurt being seen. And so I, I want to just say in that reparation, it is crucial to acknowledge the hurt and the pain that was brought on by this organization, even if it was, if it took from 1967 to then to do that. So I, I want to make those connections to that. The liberation is connected to MLK's dreaming. This apology is connected to our ability to repair, to make amends, to say, I'm sorry for the wrong that we've done. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, it's just, I, ha I had um, just so many thoughts um, as you all were talking and I think the thing that comes up for me like kind of going back to that conversation we're actually like merging um, what Dr. Anderson just said and what Dr. Jones was just said is this thinking back like okay how do we facilitate dreams for our children and then getting back to this idea of how do we repair I think to me like it's like we sometimes we talk so much about um like, oh, we want good for our children, but we don't even model what we, we don't model as adults for children. We don't dream ourselves about liberation and, and the ways in which we need to create this society for our children to develop. And I think like going to this, this conversation uh, again of reparations, like, and what psychology can do, because, you know, the apology is great, but I think again the, the and uh, even the response we can get into the, the response uh, and everything. I think the the thing I want to see in psychology is like how do we take seriously what reparations could look like and what um and and in what ways the out the in what ways we can examine the how reparations can lead to the better the betterment of the immense the mental our emotional our physical health of black people like taking serious that 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 question in academia um what can psychology do y'all like i mean king's in this in in in, in this speech he's essentially saying like okay y'all are failing us Has I, what can, like we know, and we know we had this this apology from APA, but what else? Like what, what is, what are your reflections on um, what psychology can and should do to live up to this call that um, King gave in 1967? And Dr. Jones, <laughs> I'm calling on you. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because when I was going back and reading, reading King's speech, he mentioned that, you know, he was talking about social scientists. He said, unlike, unlike physical scientists, you don't have to live with the guilt 
of contributing to these things that have caused kind of catastrophe. And he was, he was talking about like nuclear, like how physical scientists have contributed to kind of nuclear destruction. <laughs> and mm, if you will allow me, I know this is gonna sound real, real. I, I, see, I see where my sister is already. <sighs> Unfortunately, I actually believe that uh, King had higher aspirations than, is, than has been true of the field of social si sciences because we too have caused our own deep, deep, deep destruction of mind, of spirit, of psychology by what we named as normal and abnormal, who we call smart and not, you know? And so, yeah, it wasn't an atom bomb, but it's a bell curve, you know? Like what? Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I think of, so when I, I mean, I don't, I will start, I will say, I don't know all of the answers and I'm going to go back and reflect here, but it starts by, it starts by saying like, we've done a lot of damage. And so we, we do, we, we were doing damage then that King didn't actually call us in on. And then we continued after 67 to do more. And, and so some of psychology, some folks within psychology have, have, have been well-meaning, some folks have done right, some folks have righted wrongs, um, but, but we've also done a lot, a lot of damage since then. Um, and, and, you know, I, my, my hope is that we can, you know, as, as, as Reese said, that we acknowledge and that we, you know, again, in the spirit of, of the reverend, right, we, re we repent. <laughs> Like repentance is to say like, ah, I acknowledge this and I turn away. Not just like I acknowledge it, but like I turn away, I, I don't do it anymore. I go in a different direction. So what can we do? I, I'm not sure on all of the specifics, uh, but but it starts with like a, a, re, a repentance. Um, and we got away, we got away in 67. He let us off a little bit. Um, so we, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't, take pride in that. And I wonder if there was people in the room who were like, yeah, we're not as bad as the physical scientists. I wonder, I wasn't there, but um, I'll stop now. <laughs> it makes me think about who we're speaking to in our work and how we're speaking truth to power in our work. Um, I read a very traumatic article some semesters back uh, regarding intelligence. And if you know anything about the field of psychology and the specifically the, the study of intelligence, it can be uh, racist <laughs> for a lack of a better word. And I was reading in the implications of this paper that this woman was summing up, was saying that essentially that affirmative action would not do would not be helpful for low income black people because essentially that their their intelligence was such that it wouldn't make a difference and this woman was making a policy implication from based off of shoddy findings but making policy implications nonetheless and then i'm wondering why why sometimes those of us who are doing work are not making the same sort of level of implications for, for policy. 
Um, and I don't know if that is because of the, the trials of publishing. I don't know if, if certain things just won't get, won't get written, but how are we able as psychologists to speak truth to the policy level implications, the po like the ma macro level stuff? Um, and that's something that I kind of grapple with in my own work is how do you speak back to that level when we know that is the source of the harm? I'll give a very, very quick, and, and I have to be very clear that I'm not caping for APA. Like my goal is not to be a representative or anything of that sort, but I would just love to give a, a quick factual update on what's going on from the um, apology. So it's always been a one and two. Apology was always one and two was what can we actually do? So we are um, in the midst of, and, and we're talking some of my absolute mentors and people who I love to pieces are part of this committee who are working towards doing a deep analysis of what the American Psych Association is doing for diversity efforts, for righting our wrongs, and then um, is writing policy accompaniments to that. So there are movements happening as we speak so that we're able to get some, some real change in our both little p policies, the things that we're doing around our uh, governance and then big P policies within how we can get better uh, funds earmarked and, and um, moved toward ensuring that we're getting the right pipeline or fixing pipelines, maybe getting rid of them completely so that we're able to get some equity um, in our practices. So I, I did just want to acknowledge that hopefully uh, by the, in the next few months, we're going to see some very solid um, plans for what is accompanying that apology and the outcome from our assessment. I just want to throw in real quick. I, I, I professionally identify as a counselor, not a psychologist. And I think that um, it's important to, to remind us ourselves that that's, you know, APA is not a unique, that's not a, okay, that's not a unique thing that's happening. It happens across the board. We will all be hard pressed to find any professional institution that doesn't have some of the same kind of ills at its foundation. And so um, we have to, in terms from a unity standpoint, it's looking everywhere and addressing it everywhere. Um, so I just want to say that y'all not alone. No. <laughs> it is everywhere. And Rolanda, that's so helpful because I, I do think people sometimes stay in their silo and say, we only can fix it by looking here and inward and no one else has a good idea. So absolutely looking across ACA, APA, social work, public health, all of these professional organizations who have the same systemic problem of racism, right? White supremacy, as Timothy said, like all of these things that founded who these people were who wrote these, you know, executive issues in the first place. And now how we're trying to piecemeal fix it at this point, it, it requires an upheaval. It requires unification across. And again, going back to Sean's voice here, like that, you know, same song, same song. How do we promote Blackness, work toward anti-Black racism? How do we ensure that there's benefit equity with mental health in mind, with health in mind, with housing in mind as one voice? How do we create that unified front? Yeah, and as someone coming into the field, um, you know, as a youngin, getting up there, trying to figure out all this stuff, um, I think I've noticed that it, how far you get in the field is sometimes based off of how much you conform to things, um, which is definitely not specifically to psychology or the APA. Um, but I think that 
we have to make sure that we are naming specifically what it is, um, the things that we want to work against. Um, and again, as a somebody's coming up in the field, uh, we want to make these changes and start working and, and doing the work and not just, you know, I don't want to just come up here and say, well, y'all need to do this. You know what I mean? Like, I want to actually be a part of the change and make doing the work and um, hoping that everything's receptive than when I than when we start coming in. I'm uh, Marlena, start us off with the old folks saying, and I'm going to add another one. Start out like you're going to hold out. Be, be, bring yourself into spaces from the beginning. Um, I now. Sometimes, yeah, but bring, try to bring always as much of yourself into the room from the beginning. Um, be who you are. Hold hold true to what your values are from the beginning, um, as opposed to trying to, because I think a lot of young professionals do, they try to conform first and then they, they try to bust their open and be brand new. Start out like you're going to hold out, Timothy. You better read us, first of all. And then second of all, I do, you know, I'm acknowledging that we've talked about APA quite a bit today, and some people might not be, um, as Rolanda even indicated, psychologists themselves. Maybe you work in mental health in different ways. Maybe you're someone seeking mental health treatment. So I think what Rolanda just said is such a great way of thinking about how we can start shifting mental health practice for Black people. So as a professional, can you show up and be authentic so that wherever you are, your voice is heard, you're bringing that unique melody. I'm gonna steal that, Sean, I'm taking that analogy. We're gonna run all the way with this choir. But anyway, like, you know, can you bring your, your unique voice into that space? And then as someone potentially seeking treatment and, and we, again, as our Mental Health Minute have acknowledged what amazing shifts we've seen even since we've started of people being so willing to seek treatment, of willing to be well, right? So you come into the room, bring yourself, be authentic, show up in a way that is willing to, to do the work so that you can be your most well. So, so I love that, Rolanda. It goes across the professionals, it goes across the folks seeking and, and generally to our field. We need to bring more realness, more lived experience, more diversity of experience so that we can attend to our collective needs. Well, with that, I thank y'all. This conversation was just so, so beautiful. Um, just, 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 I wanna give, we have like a minute left. Does anybody have any like last things that you wanna like, just, you know, make sure to say before we wrap up? I'm glad you offered that because it was sitting there like, wait, I wish I would have added this little piece to what I was saying earlier. So when we're talking about like strategy and different ways to um, address racial injustice, I just want to, maybe I'm speaking for myself here that I support the different strategies. Like, and I'm not looking to the oppressor to approve how we go about the work. Um, so I would just, I just feel like I had to say that. Um, and yeah, folks from different whether you want to say generationally, different ideologies, they may have different ways of going about the work, but if we're working towards the liberation of Black folks, more joy for Black folks, like I'm here for it regardless of the strategy, so. Thank you for that, Raven. And really thank you to this entire wonderful team that I get the pleasure to speak with today and just celebrating and lifting the legacy of Martin Luther King on this day. Thank y'all, thank y'all. And with that, we'll wrap up. And 
I hope everyone has a beautiful and wonderful celebration of Martin Luther King Day this year in 2022. Have a good one. Didn't you know?